Hey, it's Nelly. And it's Juno. And you're listening to Two Addies and Coffee, please. Where we share unfiltered life experiences as young, badass Asian American women with ADHD. Welcome to episode six of Two Eddies and a Coffee, please. In this episode, we have a special guest with us, Dr. Mike from Level Up Mental Health. And Dr. Feldmeyer is an outpatient private practice psychiatrist at his clinic, Level Up Mental Health, as well as a part-time inpatient psychiatrist at UCLA Olive View Medical Center. He's the former chief resident and chief fellow for each of his programs. So Mike, super happy to have you here today. Could you give a brief background to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. I'm really excited to be here. I think the show is a really great idea, and I've been listening in, and I'm glad to be your guys' first guest. So um, yeah, a little bit about myself. Um, I'm a child psychiatrist by training. I also see adults. My particular interest does lie within treating ADHD, and one of the things that got me into treating ADHD is during medical school, I was actually diagnosed uh, with ADHD once I was realizing I was having some problems. I went and I got evaluated uh, by a psychologist and a psychiatrist. I got started on medications and through a lot of struggle, uh, I finally got through medical school. It's been great to be able to have that perspective while treating people with mental health conditions, uh, particularly ADHD. But growing up, I definitely realized that I had ADHD, but it was one of those things that I just kind of pushed off to the wayside and figured oh, that's not something that I have. I'm just being lazy. You know, if I just kind of spend more time and maybe distract myself less, I could be more successful in school. And so eventually that caught up with me. I think a lot of our listeners with ADHD um, have a hard time understanding like the difference between just being lazy and actually having something that is serious like ADHD. Can you elaborate a little bit about those differences with neurotypicals and just choosing not to do work versus those with ADHD? Yeah. So I think that's a common misconception that people have is, is thinking, you know, I'm just lazy, but really you're not lazy. For me, when I was uh, working, I was always working extra hard, but I was just doing things that weren't really focused on what I was doing. So I, I think one of the things that can delineate laziness from being unfocused due to something like ADHD is your level of effort. If you have that level of effort, you know, you're not a lazy person. You're just, you're just not focusing it in the right direction. You know, a lot of scientists describe ADHD as difficulty with a ratio between signal to noise. So you have, you know, much more noise going on and you need to just focus that in on the signal. And so uh, that's the primary target of ADHD medications and, and therapies. And it's not laziness, right? And you also mentioned that like growing up, even though you were seeing some of these symptoms, you kind of pushed it off. Uh, what do you think were some of the biggest causes of that and for yourself and in your experience, the people you've worked with? Yeah, so I don't think I was uh, very unique in that, you know, kind of growing up in, for, for me, the 90s and 2000s, you know, there there is a lot of stigma against any mental health issue. So I think every decade we're getting a little bit better. But I remember for myself personally, uh, when I was in elementary school, there'd be other kids with ADHD 
And, you know, my mom would say things like, you know, those are the bad kids. They have to leave to go get their medication during, during the middle of the day. You just need to focus and work harder because you're, you're a smart kid. But, uh, you know, I would internalize that. And, you know, I think that stuck with me throughout high school. You know, I would see kind of blips here and there of the disfocus in high school and in college. But like I said, it didn't really catch up to me to a dysfunctional level until medical school. But yeah, breaking that stigma is, is very difficult because, like I said, it's not just me, but it's kind of our society, the way we look at people who take medication you know, they look at it like it's something that people are doing to get an unfair advantage. And that could be true. But I think in general, there's more people who are untreated than are, quote unquote, overtreated. I think there's a huge stigma, especially within like the Asian American community with mental health and mental illnesses. And I think when I was in college, I didn't want to get like checked or like say that I have ADHD or anything because I was like, oh, everyone's going to think that I'm gaming the system because if you're on these meds, people don't think that you really need it because it's so invisible and in your head most of the times. I guess in addressing like the stigma within Asian American community as well as society, how can people without these issues try to understand and empathize with those who do have these issues? Yeah. So, I mean, that is very difficult. Yeah, within the Asian American community, and you know, my mom is Asian. I've got an Asian mom. It, it's pretty ubiquitous that feeling. Like, you know, you just need to work hard. And I think that that is a strength of the Asian American community is that willingness to work very hard. But people with ADHD do work hard as well, and it's difficult for family members to see that because they think that, yeah, they they have that same misconception that we're all just lazy and disfocused. So it's, it is difficult to get someone who is more neurotypical, especially from the Asian American community or greater Asian community to get on board with this as a dysfunction, because it's not something you can see, right? It's not like, like a, a broken arm, right? It's very difficult to describe to people if they've never experienced that feeling. But having an open dialogue with, say, parents, for example, about the struggles that you've had. And oftentimes, Unfortunately, ADHD leads to other mental health issues. In my experience, almost everyone who I've treated with ADHD has had an additional issue as far as a mood disorder like major depression or bipolar depression or anxiety, generalized anxiety, social anxiety. And in a lot of ways, by avoiding getting treatment for the ADHD, you've gone and exacerbated those issues. Or I think in some cases, you could say that you've created those issues. So it's important to take care of both, right? I think that's super helpful to have known before because maybe I wouldn't have anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> oh, do you have a comorbidity? You know, for me, I had blips here and there of, of anxiety. Definitely, you know, I'll say in high school, junior high, I would say I developed a bit of social anxiety for a while. And it's always still there. But just for me... One of the things that happened was my impulsivity was pretty high. And so what I ended up doing is saying like really stupid comments to people and, you know, being kind of thought of as like a weird person because I would just say whatever I thought was funny. You know, no one thought that was funny. And then I kind of get like self-conscious about the things I would say. And then eventually one day I just stopped saying those things for better or for worse. So, I mean, I did develop the ability to kind of empathize a little bit better. But at the same time, I was now kind of afraid to kind of put myself out there. So kind of double-edged sword there. Would you say that was like a coping mechanism? 
Yeah, so definitely a coping mechanism or kind of um, my my brain playing catch up. So yeah, I think it was a coping mechanism that kind of went too far. It's unfortunate. I, I see this in the children I treat very frequently, um, especially the more hyperactive uh, ADHDers. By the time I see them, it's been years since this has been an issue. And uh, now we're, we're playing catch up. But uh, I'll say like for any mental health condition, getting early and directive treatment is is very important. So ADHD is no different. I feel like we can definitely relate to the being weird and shutting up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think I never learned when to shut up and not say certain things. So I just remember in college, I wasn't like this like landscape architecture class. It was not even part of my major. It was just there. I made this joke in front of like 60 <laughs> plus people. No one laughed. But I was like, it's fine. <laughs> so it didn't discourage me necessarily. I just kept saying things. But I guess now that I work in more of a corporate setting, it's a lot of learning to do of things of like not to say what to say or how to say it in a way that is acceptable in this corporate environment. Like, in business terms, like, oh, let's escalate the situation and we have to coordinate the best like path of action. Oh, it, it is a headache. <laughs> so do you have any advice for those who kind of have difficulties with like social situations in terms of what to say, not being impulsive and saying whatever you're thinking at that moment? Yeah, well, I think you bring up a good point, which is that your environment kind of shows where your dysfunction lies. So for me, like I didn't have dysfunction as far as the focus until medical school. For you, you're having a bit of the kind of social dysfunction in your very particular uh, work setting. So having ADHD, when you're someone who's like an artist, who has kind of more creativity based to their work and more kind of freedom with how they want to spread out their work for the day, is going to be different than someone who's working in, in a cubicle uh, where you have to kind of get things done by a certain time period um, and you can't start doing other projects. So I think ADHD lends itself well to more creative people and less well to people who have to be very regimented and, and focused on on um, their tasks at work. As far as the kind of social aspect, building social skills, I think a lot of people kind of do learn it the hard way. Um, eventually, if you keep making mistakes, your brain does tend to self-correct, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times. And so, yeah, I've seen a lot of people develop social anxiety, getting embarrassed by things they've said, and now, now they're not willing to reach out to more people. But yeah, I mean, there's definitely social skills um, as far as like training yourself to think before you verbalize like some of the ideas that come up in your head. But it, it takes practice. It's a skill like anything else. Um, but it's definitely a skill that people with ADHD, you know, don't have naturally and do have to make it a priority in order to prove that, right? I, I can agree. It's definitely mentally exhausting. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very, very much so. So speaking of like um, social situations and kind of the effects of like how other people and social situations influence your actions and mental health, how do you think social media, like the rise of social media has affected the current state of mental health, especially for children and adolescents who grew up with it? Yeah, and, and that's that's a great perspective too. kind of the different generations. Like for me, social media came up really big during college. Like that's when Facebook launched. But that's different than if you grew up 
uh, with with TikTok um, a, as a child. But I think th- there's a few things that I, I'd mention with that. Um, first is now we're living in this world of constant distraction, right? So with notifications, say if you're on Instagram, you're on TikTok, you're on Facebook, Snapchat, and you're constantly getting bombarded with all these notifications. Um, every single time that happens, it's going to take you out of what you want to do, right? And if you're someone who's very driven and working towards like a goal, like say if you're in business or, you know, you're uh, involved with a startup and you have to get things done, you know, for a team or for yourself and you're getting, you know, constant bombardment with all this kind of stimuli from your phone, it's going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible to accomplish what you need to do, at least at the level that you know that you're, you're capable of. So for that, I have a pretty simple solution, and that's to turn off your, your notifications as much as you can. And if you're like a business person and you're really kind of dependent on email, um, you know, maybe s- segmenting some time or, or putting off some time to check your email every hour or every three hours would be part of that strategy, rather than just letting it kind of just hit you all the time. And you can actually kind of like measure out like how efficient you're being with that by how much you're able to get done um, and stay focused. Because I think I heard this somewhere that every time that you get like a notification, it takes like maybe an average of like 20 minutes to get focused to the same state of focus that you were prior to that. And so if that keeps happening, this happens multiple times uh, an hour, right? Um, You're not going to get anything done. You're going to be at least less focused than you could be. And if you're working on something that's very important, you know, it's not going to be the same level that you want it to be. The other thing with uh, social media is there's a lot more kind of feedback and um, kind of seeking of kind of new experiences, right? So take Instagram or, or TikTok, for example. Um, someone with, with an ADHD brain is really, really very stimulated by these novel experiences. So seeing a new kind of viral video is going to stimulate your brain uh, to want more. So we all know about dopamine being released when you you get something positive. So two things happen. So like when you are consuming social media, you know, you get that positive feedback by seeing a a photo you like or a TikTok that you like. Um, And if you're posting on social media, you also get that feedback when you get a lot of hearts or likes, right? And so like your brain gets kind of accustomed to, to that. So and now it becomes a new habit that you're you're seeking these uh, these positive feedback, or you know, in the other case, like now you're sensitive to to negative feedback as well. Can you see these clear differences with the patients you work with? So yeah, as far as like people who I have kind of coached to to decrease the amount of notifications they're getting, so I have some pretty motivated individuals in my practice um, for some of my adult patients. And, you know, giving them these little strategies, coaching them to, to make little changes and set their environment to optimize the way that they're working has been very successful. So I, I definitely would say like optimizing your environment and that includes like the notifications, you know, kind of minimizing like things around your desk. Um, I have a bad habit of having a really messy, dirty desk and piles and stuff. Um, so I'm more of a do as I say, not as I do type of person. You guys can't see my desk, but it's a mess. Um, <laughs> but um, I think that's a that's a scientist thing anyways. 
but I, yeah, I've seen a lot of success in, in people who make those changes. And, you know, you stack that if you do have the requirement to have uh, medication needs, um, that's only going to optimize things further. So that's funny that you mentioned the messy desk, because I was just talking to Juno about my desk at work. I have a huge pile of post-its, like coffee mugs everywhere, scraps of paper, and all of my monitors are unplugged. And I also sit right next to the men's bathroom and the kitchen. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) And I have like meetings throughout the day that's broken up into 30-minute chunks. So throughout the whole day, I'm just like, what am I? Where am I? What do I do? Like, (laughs) Yeah, so you're, you're constantly being distracted just by work and the environment, right? So like... I'm sure every time someone walks by you to go to the bathroom, you hear the toilet flush, you check. I, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you might you might want to see if you can change to like a spot that's further away from the bathroom. But yeah, my heart goes out to you. That's uh, that's a bad place to sit. Um, I'm the same way. If I sit by the door, like the entrance of, of a building and I, I hear it, I'm always going to check. And so I should say that like right now, as someone who's working, I I no longer take medication. So for me, I used it for kind of a few years um, to to get me over the hump. And, you know, I've learned other coping strategies as far as like how to set my environment, how to structure actually my my interviews when I'm doing interviews for evaluations for ADHD or or other uh, mental health issues. And so I don't find it to be something that gets in the way of the job that I do now. But you know, as a medical student, it definitely did because there, there's so many things that you have to learn that aren't really related uh, to what you want to learn that you just have to learn. Um, but uh, with psychiatry, like it's fortunately, it's like something that's always been like something very interesting to me. So I think as someone with ADHD, it really behooves you to be very interested in your line of work. Do you have any tips for students or even like young professionals who haven't found like their passion or what they're really interested in and they still have to take these like general ed courses and things that they don't like? What's the advice on like convincing your brain to like be interested in something you're just not interested in? Huh, that that is tough. So how do you get interested in something you're not interested in? One strategy would be to like really focus on like what the end goal is, but you have to come up with that end goal. So I think... With college students, this is something that I, I see a lot is they don't really have a clear goal, a clear focus. Um, so the first step would be kind of at least exploring what that that goal would be, um, even if it's a couple goals and having them kind of, you know, maybe go after two different goals. Say if you wanted to be a professional musician and a pharmacist, um, you could pursue both of those at the same time and, you know, finding what is actually you know, creating happiness. And, you know, there's financial gain if you were to choose like a uh, pharmacist over a musician in general, right? More often than not. And that can be part of that decision tree as far as like where you see yourself becoming happy because monetary gain can lead to happiness, you know, as long as it's not the pure focus, right? So you mentioned that people with ADHD can do well, especially in like creative fields. What else would you say are some of the positive aspects of ADHD that people should keep in mind? Because I think it's really easy to be like bogged down by your obstacles and things that hold you back. Yeah, I mean, I I think in my experience, people with ADHD are a lot more interesting to talk to. They're a lot more funny. (laughs) Um, and, And that is a positive, you know, you bring out a lot more joy in people, even if it's 
sometimes to the detriment uh, where you're, you're can be annoying. So <laughs> I, I think being able to like learn how to gauge yourself when you've gone too far with some of your comments is, is a good idea. Oh, I should say like one of the main things I see with people with ADHD is, you know, there's this constant curiosity and a willingness to learn new things. So they're always seeking new things. But one of the problems with that is they tend to not go into depth as much. So I don't know if you guys are like me, where you're constantly jumping from hobby to hobby. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but there's so much to say for going deeper into those hobbies. So I think with people with ADHD, it's really important to look for something that you can go deep in, but at the same time, get these little wins, right? For example, something like yoga, where you learn new poses, but as you go further into it, you become better. This takes you know years of practice, but at the same time, you're learning new poses, you, you're getting better at other poses, and you know there, there's a lot of depth to that. For me, uh, before COVID-19 happened, I was getting really into jujitsu. And so like every time you go to class, you learn a new skill. The thing with jujitsu is you're going to spend years being just very terrible and losing all the time. And then eventually those skills add up and you start to get the benefit. Or in training your brain to understand that it's okay to not get to the end result uh, immediately is a really important thing kind of in your whole life's scale of, uh, of someone with ADHD. Yeah, I think there was only one time I was able to do that because I did it with like my ex-boyfriend. So I got really good at rock climbing, but that was like a very drawn out. <laughs> it was very difficult for me to not jump into like other things. But yeah, and didn't you do that with uh, coding, if, if I remember correctly? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I was doing a, I did a data science boot camp. And after that, I started working. I was quite depressed that time, though. <laughs> Oh, okay. But, but I would say coding is one of those things that's really skill-based. Like I'm not a coder, but I kind of know about it. Um, you know, as you, as you spend some time in it, you, you get to learn certain specific techniques and you build up a a skill base. And I think that's really important for, you know, people with ADHD to, to kind of train both like the quick, quick fix and the deeper, uh, more meaningful skill experience. Yeah, I actually think, um, I think people don't necessarily see coding as creative, but I think what my job does right now, I like jump between a lot of different fields and projects and that kind of keeps that dopamine hit going. Um, so I get go in depth in like very certain things, but because I'm jumping around everywhere, it's like a generalist. So you go deep in like one kind of field and you get a good overview of stuff. So I would definitely yeah. say that, um, there is hope for people with ADHD in tech. <laughs> I know yeah, I, I agree actually. I do have Um, one question on like, um, so having a bunch of different hobbies and interests, I think in our society, we value specialization instead of being like a jack of all trades. And I think that could be super detrimental to those who think that they should have to have a path early on, like in high school or college and pick something and stick through it. So how can you use your skill sets of being kind of like interested in so many different things, but also see that that's not the only path for you to choose one thing to do. Yeah. So I think people with, with ADHD, they're definitely more apt to explore different things, which, which is going to be a good thing. I think a lot of people get comfortable with like whatever path they've chosen. And it's, it's like, once you start going down that path, um, it's very hard to change courses um, for people in general, 
you know, if you decide you hate your job when you're like 30, it's, it's very difficult to completely leave your job, maybe go back to school and, and restart again. That, that's a very uncomfortable feeling. The thing with people with ADHD is you're going to be more able, I guess, to, to try different things. Like your path isn't straight. It's going to be kind of zigzaggy. So it's kind of a positive thing with ADHD. But if you never kind of make any forward progress, then, then it will be to your detriment. So that, that is something that does require a balanced approach. Yeah, I would say I'm very, very comfortable with drastic change. Yeah. <laughs> One of my friends said every time she gets a really drastic haircut, she's like, I have to talk to Juno for any drastic life changes. <laughs> so we talked a bit about the positive aspects of ADHD. Um, I remember when you were talking about your story, you also mentioned stuff about high-functioning ADHD. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So one of the kind of, I guess, clusters of people with ADHD who are kind of more hard to diagnose and, and kind of nail down are, are people with higher IQ. Um, so those individuals, they have a lot more compensatory mechanisms, right? So they're able to get by through school without being identified. So I actually notice this a lot more with female ADHD years than uh, males. Um because they don't tend to be as, as hyperactive and creating problems for their, their teachers um, in junior high, um, at least not in, aver- um, in general. Some do, though. But um, Nelly. <laughs> I think my high school teacher thought I was on drugs because I was so hyperactive. He sent me to the guidance counselor and I was just like, oh, no, yeah. no, I'm just this is me. I'm not on anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, but those individuals with high IQ, like they'll be disfocused and at the same time, they'll still accomplish what they need to because, you know, it's easy for them in certain ways, like to gain knowledge and to do well on a, on a test like the SAT or ACT because, you know, that focus that they do have when they do have it, uh, it's, it's just really high efficiency and they may acquire what a person with normal intelligence without ADHD, they can get what they get done in a very small time space. So maybe like 30 minutes of someone else's like four hours of studying, for example. And so like, that's sort of, it's a hard place to be because I think that stigma starts to weigh in where you feel like, you know, you know, I'm pretty smart. Why do I need a medication to help me? Isn't that cheating? And I think, you know, if you meet the criteria for the diagnosis of ADHD, then why not? You know, as long as everything else is is going fine. Like if you're noticing that dysfunction, you know, when it happens. So for me, it was in professional school. I know lawyers who um, have experienced the same thing, maybe engineers as well. Uh, so it, it is worth doing because once you get into that professional school, you're with kind of neurotypical people who have the same kind of high intelligence as you, but they don't have this huge disadvantage. So it's worthwhile to to get treatment. I've noticed that when I was in college and I couldn't focus in class because people were just typing on their computers or like I would sit in the back and then it's hard to listen and see everyone walking around you. So I just stopped going to class and then I would just watch the lectures at home. And because I would also procrastinate, I would watch it at two times the speed that which like YouTube allows. But then I realized that I needed to get another extension to make it faster. So I would watch 60 minute lectures into like 15 minutes. And I feel like for me, I processed wow. it a lot better and I could learn more than if I actually had to like sit through the whole hour. Is there any like 
anything scientific behind that? Yeah. And what I think you're doing is you're compensating for, and that's probably a little bit anxiety driven because you have to get it done, right? You have to get those lectures done. So you've kind of found a, a you know, quote unquote, a balance of your ADHD and, and kind of the anxiety. So the anxiety is driving you to push through the ADHD at that point. So yeah, were you really listening at four times speed? I was because the teacher talks so slowly. Oh, and, okay. then, and then two times was like normal voice for me. And then three times <laughs> was like a little bit more. So then I could just focus a lot better. And then there was like 24 lectures. It was like the final. So I would just chug energy drinks and then watch yeah. it throughout the night. And that was it. And then sometimes I would like book flights. So it was like a, I would go to Asia for like spring break or something. And that's like uh-huh. the only time I had to study. And I didn't want to study during my trip there. So I would like go on the flight and just watch it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that was my experience as well. Cause I, I went to medical school in Chicago. So I'd have like, I think it was like a four hour flight. Um, and I would get so much done during that time because, you know, I wasn't distracted. It was dark in the cabin and I had the light on on top and I was just going through my notes. I would get like a full four hours of efficient study done, uh, which was great because then I felt like I could relax. And then I'd get home from Chicago and I'd just be like, okay, well, I did a lot of work. Now I, I can be lazy. And then I get behind again. So. <laughs> I feel like whenever I try to explain to people what it's like to procrastinate such huge projects and get it done in a little bit of time, it's hard for people to believe or imagine that you're just that much more efficient. And do you imagine that like, oh, maybe you just stay up and like, all the hours add up to what a normal person spends. Um, Could you help those people maybe understand, or is there like science behind what makes us so efficient and hyper-focused? Yeah. So when you're feeling the crush of something that's pending, like getting a project done uh, or getting your assignments done, you're going to feel kind of this feeling of dread and fear. And that's going to create, you know, this adrenaline rush where you're going to get this burst of, of neurotransmitters and now you have to get things done. Um, and so you're going to feel energized and work hard, but I don't know, you know how that's going to compare to like your ability to do work if you spaced it out. So I think getting your work done is definitely more important than not getting it done. So, you know, done is better than perfect for sure. But at the same time, it's sort of one of those things that you can't necessarily control. It just kind of happens, it, at least in my experience. Um, there are kind of ways you can kind of condition that, right? I think Nelly, you told me that you have your best work done during the nighttime. Yeah. I think the reason for that is there's a lot less distractions during that time. Um, you know, people aren't texting you, you know, there's not like, at least when TV was around and there wasn't like (laughs) TV shows, uh, but you know, now with Netflix, you can just watch it. But, um, yeah, when it's more quiet and your environment is more conducive to getting your work done, you know, that helps everybody. So I think finding ways to create that for yourself is very important. For me, that's definitely like a a compensatory mechanism, that boost of fear and energy that gets you to get your work done. (laughs) You mentioned that a lot of people have these compensatory mechanisms or strategies for doing things. Um, But in my experience, I feel like because I didn't work like 40 hours that other people work for doing like a project, let's say, and I can do everything in eight hours, it always feels like I'm not living to my potential or I could do a lot more, even though you get positive praises from everyone like, oh, this is awesome. This is amazing. And I guess like one experience I remember the most is that I had a three month long internship. I like read a lot of things I didn't put anything down in words but like the day before my presentation to the entire company I just pulled an all-nighter and did my whole entire presentation 
and then I gave my presentation. Everyone was like, oh, this is awesome. This is so good. But then to me, it always feels like, oh, I, I could have done better. And it also interplays with like the imposter syndrome where like, yeah, I don't know if I just got lucky all these years and this just happened or if I was actually skilled and qualified to do these things. Yeah, I, I think it's it's difficult to well, I, I think it's very common to put that kind of pressure on yourself, especially if you've been someone who's been performing well, uh, despite some of these these issues. And so you have to give yourself credit that you are a smart person. You know, ADHD isn't isn't an intelligence thing, right? And at the same time, you've been kind of diffusely learning and exploring these things, you know, for that project. And I mean, I think there's always ways you can be better and do better. But at the same time, at the end of the day, you, you got the project done. Um, so you have to give yourself credit for that. I, I would say there's, there's ways to optimize your situation. So that way, you're not just kind of always focused on just finishing it within like the last few hours before it's due. And so like learning about what you're able to do kind of spaced out is going to be important. So rather than just always relying on that burst, because it might not happen one day, that's the thing. And that was my experience. So eventually you kind of get burnt out on it. And that's going to be like, if your, your hour requirements to accomplish something goes up beyond like what you're able to focus on, Mm -hmm. it's going to be eventually something that catches up on you. If you're, if you're a particularly driven, motivated person, like, like I know you guys are. I would say, yeah, I definitely experienced that. It's like the pressure valve breaks and you're like, oh my God, no. (laughs) Yeah. And when I was in college, I would try to figure out ways to trick myself into like feeling the pressure earlier. So what I would do is I'd actually pull all nighters, not the night right before the test, but the night before that. Mm. Um, So I'd pull an all nighter and then I'd feel exhausted the day before the test and take a nap during the day. So I don't know if that was efficient, but that's, that's what I personally did like when I was in college, but like, yeah, it'd be so nice if I could have just done four hours for like a week instead of eight hours one night. Right. And for a lot of our listeners who are undiagnosed or diagnosed, what are some of the key things they should look out for in terms of what triggers them and what their symptoms are? There's a lot of things that can pop up as far as distractions. So with, when we're talking about attention and focus, the, the main thing that you can control is distractions. You can't control all distractions, right? But you can, like if you're a student in college, you can go to the library and sit in one of those cubicles, uh, put your headphones on. Um, with technology, we have to kind of be mindful of how we're, we're using that, if we're using it in a, in a way that's helping our focus or hurting our focus. So for me, I would end up like going on YouTube and like looking for music videos so I would listen to it because I'm like, well, if I listen to music, I can focus more. But I'd end up searching more than the time that I'm spending on my work and my projects. So getting like one of those, I think there's like really cool videos where they're like six hours long of like white noise. That would be more beneficial. Um, so you have to really kind of take an analytical approach to yourself, see where your your triggers are and and manage those kind of as they come up. Um, so that takes a little bit of looking outside of yourself and being very scrutinizing to yourself in, in, in a way. Um, but we all have things that trigger us and learning how to minimize that is going to lead to further success in the future. Um, so you mentioned that your diagnosis and your struggle wasn't necessarily what motivated you to start your practice and your YouTube channel. Um, what was the inspiration behind that? 
Um, yeah, so the main inspiration really was kind of what I noticed with families I'd been working with and, and couples where technology, uh, which I always thought was like this great thing, just in general, technology, social media, video games, we're living in such a fantastic time where you have like infinite entertainment. And, you know, what I noticed is that our reliance on kind of this entertainment is tending to degrade our, our relationships with one another. So I don't know if you guys, like when you're hanging out with your friends, notice that everyone's on their phone mm-hmm. all the time, right? You guys are still together and you're hanging out, but like it's it's diffuse. Like you're you're halfway with who you're with and you're halfway with your phone. And, and so that can have consequences in a number of ways. So um, one of the things that I saw this first in was like with relationships with, with couples where uh, maybe the guy plays too many video games and, you know, maybe the girls on Instagram too much. <clears throat> and over time, like they, they start to grow apart because they're kind of, they're together, but they're separate all the time, um, at least on, on a, a focused mental level. Right. And I also noticed this with, with children who, you know, they were spending so much time playing, like playing Fortnite or Minecraft and parents just don't know like like how much is is too much how much is enough and so part of my practice was kind of training parents on like how to set boundaries with gaming time and um, social media time Um, also teaching people about kind of how our relationship with technology can degrade um, you know our, our sense of self so like you know things like fear of missing out with your friends when they're all going out and you're seeing their um, Instagram posts and, or if they're going on a like really awesome vacation and you're like stuck having to like work three jobs, it's going to kind of weigh down on you. So uh, like knowing that that's where kind of my focus in, in my practice is about, uh, you know, not completely, but that, that is sort of a unique aspect of my practice is, is focusing in on those issues. When you mentioned that you work with parents blocking screen time and stuff, I remember I subscribed to this ADHD magazine and I ignored it for a while because it was for like parents giving advice to parents on how to manage their kids with ADHD. And I was like, oh, irrelevant. I'm an adult. And then I read the magazine about blocking out and like dopamine and stuff like that. I was like, wow, I need this this advice and I need to block my time. I need to use choose like low dopamine activities and things like that. And I didn't realize how much of this stuff was like really straightforward, simple ways of helping me as an adult. Yeah. Um, do you have any advice for like adults specifically with ADHD who don't necessarily have always the right guidance that's directed towards them since a lot of it is like framed for children right now? Yeah. Um, and, and what I would say is those parents of those children with ADHD, a lot of them themselves have ADHD and likely that's the first time that they've even heard of ADHD is when their, their child was having an issue. Um, and so I've seen tons of parents where they've got undiagnosed ADHD. And so you have to kind of train them like some of their own symptoms. Like how does that affect parenting? So ADHD and parenting makes things very difficult with consistency, uh, which, which children need. Um, But yeah, for, for adults specifically, you know, our brains are similar to children's uh, except for the fact that ours are fully developed and theirs are still developing. So but a lot of the principles that we uh, use with with children apply to adults as far as, you know, setting those conditions for for minimizing distractions and optimizing your focus. Um, so like regimenting your time, like blocking out time to focus on specific tasks. Um, uh, I like the concept of the Pomodoro technique. 
uh, where you, you give yourself 25 minutes to focus on something, then you take five minutes off. I think 25 minutes is a good amount of time to focus on, on a task uh, with, with ADHD. You know, different people are different. So you might need like 50 minutes and do like the 50 minutes on, 10 minutes off style. But um, I think just being able to block off that time, it, it's hard actually as a parent to block off that time if you're, you've got a child with ADHD and they're distracting you. Um, so like, there's not a, a simple answer, but it's you do the best that you can and you will get better and improve your life. It's funny that you mentioned that our brains are like children's because I actually <laughs> do use a lot of like those fidget toys for children and it helps me focus a lot more. For me, they distract me. So like I, uh, I have this, but... no, <laughs> I have no, this visual timer. It's oh, yeah, like for, it's made for toddlers who don't have a sense of time. <laughs> and no, I heard that that, that was good for ADHD. So I bought it is, and it worked. Is good. You know, sometimes we need the, the visual feedback as well, because, you know, who knows where your, your focus is going to be? Is it going to be in your, your vision or is it going to be in your like, hearing? So, yeah, I like those timers. <laughs> what would you say has been most helpful for you personally in managing your ADHD? Um, yeah, so I think writing things down has been pretty, pretty much a game saver. Um, I actually switched to using Evernote a few years ago. Um, so like, I, I have to write things down cause I have all these ideas like for, for me, like with videos or with like concepts that I want to teach people, like when I am training them for ADHD or technology use, um, like that just come up throughout the day. Cause like, like you guys, like I have this diffuse brain and like, I want to take advantage of that. So for me, turning this kind of weird ADHD brain into something that that's effective was like documenting, like. The, the thoughts that I've had. And so I'll, I'll go back to my notes and I'll kind of explore further. So, you know, I've got that diffuse thought and then I've got that more in-depth thought. So mm. learning how to kind of structure that, it's going to be different for every person, but that's the way that worked for me. Got it. Any concluding thoughts before we end the episode? Uh, yeah. So, you know, I think if, if you're someone with ADHD or you think that you have symptoms of ADHD, it, it's worth it for yourself to go ahead and get an evaluation and get treatment. Um, you know, you're not gaming the system. You're not, you know, you don't have to listen to what your, your family's trained you to think like you, if you do have a condition, you should get it treated. Like we have the knowledge about this, uh, this sort of stuff, and we can really drastically change your life, you know, either with medication or with uh, executive functioning training, and there are things you can do on your own, like, I, like I'd mentioned, but first you have to acknowledge that there's a problem and then you can move forward. But, you know, don't feel like you're not worth it to improve your life, right? I absolutely agree. My life has been changed this year. <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, Mike. This is a really, really helpful, insightful interview. Check out Mike on social media on Instagram, Level Up Mental Health. And he also has a YouTube channel, Level Up Mental Health. Um, follow him on Twitter, Mike Feldmeyer, MD, and his website, levelupmentalhealth.com. Thanks for listening to episode six of Two Addies and a Coffee, Please.